Binge-Eating Dietitian Podcast. My name is Jo, I'm a registered dietitian and I'm here to smash binge eating. In today's podcast episode, we have another wonderful guest who is smashing binge eating too. But before I get to that, I want to let you know that this Thursday, October 13th, I am running a free event that I think is really going to help you out. The free event is on this Thursday, October 13th at 8.30 p.m. UK time or 3.30 p.m. Eastern time. And all you have to do is turn up, sit back and relax because I am going to share with you my top tips, my wisdom on how you can keep chocolate at home in your fridge and feel in control around it. Not feeling like it's always calling your name, not feeling like it's always haunting you and that you just have to eat it as quick as you can to regain control over it. No, I don't want you to live like that anymore. Come join me this Thursday, October 13th at 8.30 p.m. UK time or 3.30 p.m. Eastern time and we will get into how you can take steps, keep chocolate at home and feel okay about it. All you have to do is register your interest. Remember, it's completely free, but you do have to register. So there's a link in the show notes where you can go and do that now. I can't wait to see you on Thursday in just a few days time. All right, let's get into today's episode, shall we? I am honored to be joined by fellow binge eating dietitian, Marissa Kaimilik. I started following Marissa on Instagram some time ago, and I was very pleasantly surprised to see that, just like me, Marissa has also been on her own journey of binge eating recovery. Marissa is a registered dietitian based in South Carolina and works with clients worldwide with one-to-one coaching behind the Binge Academy. And you can follow her on Instagram at binge.nutritionist. In this episode, we dive into how Marissa's binge eating developed when she was just 17, how she was fooled into thinking that veganism was the answer to her binges and how knowing her why helped to stay motivated to recover. She also gives me some tips on the best US snacks right at the end, so stay until then. Thank you, Marissa, for joining me on the Binge Eating Dietitian podcast, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Here we go. As a dietitian who works with people who struggle with binge eating, how you came to do this work too. Oh my gosh. Well, first of all, thank you so much. I'm so excited to be on the podcast and talking about this, especially since it's a shared passion of ours. But yeah, I uh, I mean, if we want to start from the very beginning about you know why I became a dietitian, I actually am, I guess what you'd consider a second career dietitian. Like it wasn't my first career. It's not like this is something I always knew I wanted to do. I actually wanted to be an actress and I wanted to get into television and film and I had done theater my whole life. And so I moved off to Los Angeles when I was actually only 17 years old and started to pursue acting full time. I moved off to Los Angeles at 17 to pursue acting full time. And that's just all I ever knew I wanted to do. I had already had some disordered eating habits up to that point, just already getting the pressure of the industry even before moving out there. But then, of course, once I got there, it really got perpetuated by not only 
just normal beauty standards in the industry, but also because I was in this box of actresses uh, and actors called 18 to play younger, where you kind of look younger than over the age of 18, once I turned 18. And they really value anyone who looks that way because you can be on set longer hours. There's less restrictions to what you're allowed to do because you're of legal age, but you look younger so you can play those 14, 15-year-olds on Disney Channel and whatnot. But because of that pressure for that to be the box to fit into, I also had the pressure to not change my body. And as a woman growing up and growing into adulthood, my body was trying to change. My body wanted to change. My body needed to change. But I began to fight that uh, with diets, restriction, which ultimately led me to binging. And it got out of control from there to a point where dieting, food, my body became my whole life. And I started to get further and further away from my passion of acting. And I started spending hours in the library reading about nutrition and researching how to stop binge eating and trying just everything to get food under my control, which of course we know further makes me out of control with food. Um, and then eventually I hit this, this sort of breaking point. To make a long story short, I realized that I was spending so much of my time thinking about food and nutrition and all of these things, no longer focusing on acting, that I started to see a new passion coming to life through my own recovery of helping other people with their relationships with food and with binge eating. So after about three years in Los Angeles, it felt like a lifetime, but after just three years in LA, I decided to move back to the East Coast where where I grew up in, in West Virginia, actually, and go back to college to study nutrition and dietetics and become a dietitian. And I always knew from the point I decided I wanted to be a dietitian that I wanted to help people with binge eating, help them overcome this cycle because it is so challenging and lonely. And I never wanted anyone to feel alone the way I did through a lot of my recovery. So yeah, that kind of covers how I, I kind of got here to what I get to do today. Wow, that was such a journey for you. I can't imagine the pain that a 17-year-old has to experience to actually say, okay, I'm going to focus my whole lifelong career on this problem. Yeah, I just remember feeling like my career and how quote-unquote successful I would be in acting really came down to what I looked like. And unfortunately, that's kind of what was being told to me. So, so much pressure was put on what I looked like and how small I was and how that could be an asset to my career. And yeah, it, it was everything more than, you know, the studies that I was trying to do to become a better actress. It was just like, how could I be smaller? Considering you had an eating disorder, are you comfortable with me saying that you had yeah. an eating disorder yeah. at that point? Yeah. Considering you had an eating disorder then, you went into dietetics with those eyes, with that lens of, okay, I have an eating disorder and I want to help people who have eating disorders. But I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but did you find that your training added to your disordered eating behaviors, like training to be a dietitian? I think it definitely got confusing at times. So I did kind of resolve, not I guess not resolve, but I was already pretty deep into my own recovery journey by the time my school started. So remember, I decided to kind of full-fledged go into healing my relationship with food and overcoming binge eating in 
like June of whatever year that was. And then I didn't get to university until September. So I had many months under my belt of sort of my full, what I called all in of my recovery. And I had a a switch flip in me where I was like, I'm recovering. I'm, I'm no longer doing this. Like I'm done. And I think that really helped propel me forward pretty quickly in my recovery because I was just so sick of the cycle. I really hit my diet rock bottom. And I was like, I'm never doing this again. I don't really care what happens. I just know that dieting is continuing to fail me. And I don't want to be at war with food for the rest of my life. So that really propelled me forward in my recovery. So that way, by the time my university was starting, I had a pretty good head on my shoulders with my relationship with food. But I will say that I took a very... Now I see it as like a disordered approach to recovering where I ended up going vegan and I was hiding beneath this idea of like, oh, well, being vegan will keep me small, but you can eat whatever you want was the idea I got in my head. So a lot of my early studies in my dietetics career, like I put all of my research papers into veganism and my, any projects I had, any sort of extracurricular ventures was always about veganism. And it wasn't until I think four years, like my last year, senior year of dietetics that I realized that that was sort of a disguise, my disordered eating and eating disorder put on to still feel safe. And then once I finally released that is when I, I kind of see myself as finally having the the true freedom that intuitive eating and food freedom could bring me. But, you know, a lot of those things did get masked by veganism. So I think what I was learning in university it in some ways continue to perpetuate some of those disordered eating thoughts because of how restrictive, I mean, my veganism was, and it wasn't for the right reasons. Like I fully support someone being vegan for animal rights and um, ethical reasons, et cetera. But mine was, was simply like, how can I continue to control food in a way that doesn't seem disordered? And I didn't know it at the time. And so I kind of further dug myself down that hole through all of this research I was doing in veganism in my dietetic career. But it was actually in my uh, grad program that I first really learned about health at every size. And so I actually feel like that ended up being helpful in propelling me into this career once I was done with my dietetic internship and everything, because I learned so much about it in those kind of final years of my of my schooling. So if I picked you up correctly, you you partially recovered as a vegan and then the full recovery happened when, when you let that go? Yeah, I'd say that. So I, I was able to resolve my binge eating and all of those things as a vegan, but that pressure to remain like the body image side of things, I felt like did not fully resolve until I let veganism go because I felt like veganism was the one thing I was holding on to as a way to control my body, which I now know is just completely false. I just I'm genetically small. And so whether I was vegan or not, I have the privilege of being in a straight sized body, but I I thought veganism was the one thing keeping me small. And I started to unpack a lot of those ideas and sort of fat phobia and, and that stuff. And then I let veganism go. And that's when I feel like I really came to make more peace with my body. You have a client that comes to you now who says they're vegan. What's your approach to it? What's your stance? I usually ask, what's your intention behind it? I fully respect people for wanting to follow any sort of dietary patterns for ethical reasons, um, religious reasons, even if it is reasons of like, they just feel better eating that way. 
But I, we do unpack a lot of the questions around, do you really feel better eating that way? Or has someone once told you that you would feel better feeling that way and you've believed it so hard that it seems like you do? Um, and is it perpetuating any disordered eating to where the quote unquote benefit of following certain dietary patterns has too much of a cost to where it's actually not beneficial, right? Someone were to say that, you know, eating vegan, um, I don't know, gave them clearer skin, let's just say, because I've heard that before. I'm like, okay, well, is the benefit of the clearer skin worth the cost of binging or GI distress if that's another cost of it? It's just dependent on the person, really. So I really try to dig into what the intention is behind it, because at the end of the day, my goal is to help someone become more in tune and trusting with their own body and not do something just because they think it's the right thing to do or someone once told them it was the right thing to do. So I just want us to get to the bottom of that intention and if it really is in alignment with them and, and their body's needs. Yeah. Veganism is really tricky, isn't it? Because people do take it on as being my persona. It's my identity. It's who I am. So to be vegan, let's say during the day when you're with your colleagues and like living the vegan life, but then behind closed doors when you're binging, you're binging on all non-vegan foods brings a whole other element of shame, I think, when it's so attached to your identity. A hundred percent. And I also like to look at, is it a specific vegan diet? Because you can go far in there too. Is it raw food, you know, yeah. all those whole foods, whatever, because if that's the case, then you can't really argue the ethical standpoint because it, if you, you know, you don't have to be a raw vegan foodist to, to be quote unquote saving animals and stuff that, that is under those ethical beliefs. So is there a fear of eating less nutritious vegan foods? And if that's there, then I'd say it's being fueled more by the disordered eating than it is any ethical principles. Was it difficult for you to let go of that label as being a vegan? Oh, totally. I think the first time I ate eggs, I cried after being vegan for like uh, three years or so. Um, it was hard. But the moments when I when I realized I needed to let go of veganism was when I started dating my current partner. And he's like my best friend. We would do things all the time together. He was always really supportive of me being vegan. It was never a problem. but. I found myself getting more and more stressed to go out to eat with him and to go see his family because I had to make all these dietary modifications that were stressing me out. And the moment food became stressful again for me, I it, it put out like a red flag. And I learned a lot about disordered eating at that point, even in my schooling. And then, of course, from my past experience, that it was very clear for me to see the red flags where if food was becoming complicated again for me, then I wasn't doing something healthy for me. So I had to have a lot of reflection internally of if veganism still was what I always said it was for me, which was that it was for the animals or even for my health. And I was like, is this healthy anymore if it's stressing me out? So if it was no longer about the health, like then why was I doing it? And is the benefit of saving some animals worth the cost of a stressful relationship with food to me. And to me, I was like, this isn't worth it anymore based on really how stressful it was becoming. I was starting to have those thoughts again of like, oh, I just, I'll cancel going to dinner with my partner and his family. And 
I was like, that's not what my life is about. The reason why I started on this path, the reason why I healed my relationship with food was so that I could go to dinner with people and not stress out about it. And now here I am stressing about it again. So yeah, it was hard to, to let that go. But with time, I opened up the variety of foods I was eating, started with eggs, fish, dairy, bringing it in slowly. And it it was really helpful for me mentally when it came to my relationship with food. And I still love vegan foods and I still love plant-based foods and things. But now any choices that I make with food are just coming from a very different intention and an intention that is supportive of me, both mind and body. Did you have any professional help going through this time when you were going? No, I know. And that's why I wanted to do what I, what I do because so when I first started realizing I had disordered relationship with food, I, I mentioned it to a doctor that I, cause I also went through some purging behaviors and I mentioned to a doctor that I was purging after my meals. And she just said like, Oh, don't do that anymore. Like, you're not going to do that anymore though. Right. That was it. And now I look back and I'm like, that is so horrible. I was reaching out for help in a way and it was dismissed. And so I started to get this idea that it wasn't that bad and I just need to not uh, whatever. And then I also once told a, a dietitian, I showed her my, my fitness pal and the calories I was eating. And I, it was not even enough for a toddler. And she was like, well, as long as that feels satisfying to you, then that's fine. And I remember her saying, if you ever need to lose weight for a role, we'll bring out the big guns. And I'm like, what is worse than what I was already doing now looking back? And I was already too small. And it was just, it's so harmful to look back on and see that there were so many moments where somebody could have been like, uh, are you okay? And it didn't happen. And and so I started to be very convinced that I wasn't sick enough, which is horrible. Um, but after all of that, and then once I realized, you know, I have an eating disorder and I'm not getting the help I need and I can't seem to find the help I need because I can't get this diagnosis officially because my doctor's not even really believing me. I actually just sort of went full-fledged into recovery by myself. Um, And I look to like mentors online and stuff. I love online communities for that. Like people will share their experiences and YouTube videos were really helpful for me as well. I could see it also on the flip side being harmful, but it was helpful in many ways to help me to believe in myself in recovery and realize that I wasn't alone. Um, And so that's really why I like to try to cultivate that online now as a professional, because I don't think anyone should have to go through it alone the way I did. Do you mind me asking like a ballpark figure of when this was? Uh, It was 2015. So how many years ago is that? Seven? It's interesting. So that's pretty much the same time that I struggled too. But I remember Googling and finding like very little resources that were helpful. Yeah. I mean, it was very sparse. I feel like it's so much more talked about online now, which is amazing. But I, yeah, it was hard to find anyone. And honestly, when I look back on the people that I did find on YouTube or whatever, talking about it, when I look at it now, I'm like, this is really still disordered. So I feel like I went through a bit of a pseudo recovery at first. And at least that propelled me into a place where I could find intuitive eating and really full-fledged get into a, a fully recovered life, but uh, it was, it wasn't professionals talking about it. It was, you know, just people with their own lived experiences, which can be incredibly valuable. But I also see now some of the things in which I don't agree with. Like when I think about my own recovery, like I, I always want to 
to recover but also lose weight surely that was it always yeah Yeah. and that's why I went vegan was because Mm -hmm. I found this community online called raw till four and people were like oh it's healing my binge eating because you can eat as much as you want and you won't gain weight and sure that's true for the people who are naturally just their set weight is thin and their their bodies are straight size, but there are some many people who now share their experiences of going raw till four and being like, I gained so much weight because that was just kind of a, a hidden form of disordered eating. Like it allowed me to binge, but I was binging on carbs and all the foods I used to previously restrict as a vegan. Um, so anyway, yeah, it was just like a, it was a disguise and they're more like, oh, I'll still be thin. And that's just what continues to fuel disordered eating, at least was for me. Sounds like you have grown so much since then. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like even in the past two years, like I always say it's been seven years since I've recovered because it was in 2015 that I had my last binge and it was like the end of 2015 and I haven't had a full-fledged binge since. But I look back at even like the past two or three years once I started my practice, I feel like that's when I really just transform my relationship with food in my body because I started working with others and getting supervision for working with others and recognizing different lived experiences, different, more marginalized experiences that even I can't relate to. So I can't just say that my recovery is what's going to be the same for every single person as well. And I think that has really transformed a lot for me as well. And so that's been really valuable, finally getting to do what I've always wanted to do, but not only that, getting to to, I don't know, share those lived experiences and learn from others along the way. So you graduated as a dietitian and went straight into being a specialist in binge eating? Yeah, I did my dietetic internship and did clinical, um, all of those things. And I wanted, I did want to first go into clinical. I actually, even though I always wanted to do disordered eating or eating disorder work, I did find a love for tube feedings in my in my clinical internship and in my uh, graduate school. I loved tube feedings. It was like my favorite thing and everyone else hated it, at least in my, my program. Um, so I was like, oh, I'll get a clinical job and it's fine. But when I graduated, I uh, was at the start of COVID um, and everybody was getting furloughed. So I couldn't actually find a job. So I was like, all right, well, if I can't get a job, out in a, in a hospital, I'm just going to start coaching people online and see, use that as like a side job. And I'm just, I'm very, very lucky that it just took off and I was able to go right into it. Cause that was always my dream. This is my dream job. Uh, but it, it just so happened to fall right into my lap because mm-hmm. of just the state of the world at the time. So if there's ever a silver lining mm-hmm. to that time, uh, that was it for me. It, it is a silver lining because that was the time when, certainly for me, like that's when my practice started as well. And not because I had put myself out there, but because people were searching for me because that's when eating disorders really, really became difficult for people. Oh yeah. Yeah. So many people that I worked with at the beginning of my practice said that they always knew something was off, but they didn't realize how big of a problem their binge eating was until isolation where they had food just at their disposal 24 seven when they were working from home and it was controlling their life. Like they could avoid it a little bit when they went to work and got out of their house, but they were in a situation where they couldn't do that. And we're like, wow, okay, this is worse than I thought it was. And 
it's unfortunate that that is sort of what led so many people to recognize that the problem really was worthy of help. But I am so glad that, you know, people like us were there to help those people who were struggling during the pandemic because eating disorders were definitely, oh man, on the rise during the pandemic. I think I've even seen statistics about that. Like it was one of the highest um, times for a lot of mental illness. Yeah. And usually pretty poorly resourced, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I was going to say, and that's also why I love virtual practices because like I grew up in West Virginia, there's no dietitian in my hometown who could see eating disorders. I think there was only one dietitian in my town in general, but definitely no one specialized in eating disorders. And I think about my state as a whole, and there's so many really rural areas where there's not access to a dietitian or really even a therapist. And so I think having a virtual practice just helps to reach more people, which is something that I also didn't think I would get into when I was thinking about private practice and becoming a a binge eating dietitian. I always thought I'd have a brick and mortar practice where people could come see me. But because of the pandemic, virtual was my only option. And now I'm really grateful that that became more normal to see people virtually and do telehealth because now I see how helpful it can be to access those people who don't, don't have anything around them. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, it's such a gift to be able to help so many more people, even with podcasts like this and like your podcast too, to be able to reach those people is incredible. How did you feel about speaking openly about your own eating disorder online? Surprisingly, I was okay. I grew up, so because I grew up wanting to be an actress, I think it helps me a lot. (laughs) A lot of my media stuff that I, I really love doing is really because I grew up in theater and then also, you know, spent some years in television and film, at least like being on sets and stuff. So I learned a lot about being on camera. And also when I was pursuing acting, I started YouTube. So I was used to talking to the camera oversharing. It's kind of part of my nature to overshare. So that actually was, um, wasn't too hard. I think that the hardest part about sharing my story was sort of a mix of people I know learning about it. I think that's harder than even just random people knowing about it It was like people really close to me learning about it. And also people who knew me during that time learning about it and not realizing that something was going on. I think that was uh, really hard, especially my family, like some awkward conversations after I was like, oh, talking about it live. But um, I always knew that the bigger purpose was to hopefully reach someone and help them hear that they're not alone. And I think the first time that I shared that I used to uh, throw away my binge foods and then later take them out of the trash and binge on them, I got so many messages of people being like, I literally thought I was the only one who has ever done this. Thank you so much for removing some of the shame of it. It's like, yeah, I mean, we think everything that we do, we're the only ones, but in reality, especially with binge eating, so many other people struggle with those same things. It's not your fault and you're not alone. And so that's always what really motivated me and reminded me for why I share and why I talk so openly about it. Because uh, really, we're not alone. Yeah, absolutely. That's so interesting that you've had that experience too, where people are like, what? Like, this is a thing. Actually, people 
go into the trash and take food out or you know pour detergent on food when it's in the bin so you don't want to eat it oh and- yeah I've done all of that stuff and I shared a reel the other day where I said something about when you you're dreaming about binging and so many comments people are like oh I thought I was the only one who actually dreamed about binging I'm like your brain is very powerful and when you're hungry which is you know a very core reason why you binge you're going to think about food even in your dreams. At what point are your clients at when they come to you? I have had a lot of people reach out to me where they don't feel like it's that bad. I feel like most of the people who end up actually moving forward to work with me are at that stage of change where they are ready and they know it's a problem. I'd say I get a lot of inquiries from people who are not sure they're sick enough or they'll say like, oh, I don't have an eating disorder. I just like, can't stick to my diet. And no matter how often I share with people that I don't do weight loss, so many people come to me and they're like, but I still need to lose weight. And so there's a lot of that contemplation going on sometimes when people reach out. And sometimes that's a good time for some people to start. And sometimes people just, they're not there yet. And that's okay too. I I, I don't want to, um, you know, you definitely have to be maybe not ready, but at a certain point in your, in your mental journey with food to recognize, okay, I have to do something different to get started on this journey. Um, I'd say most of the people that I work with, they're in this space. There's always that doubt that it's not that bad or that they're just the ones that doesn't, they don't, they don't have enough willpower to stick to a diet, which is just not true. Um, but they're usually at this place where I'm like, they're like, F this. I don't want to diet anymore. I just keep binging. I'm restricting and binging and I'm quote unquote clean all week. And then I binge all weekend. And they've gotten to that exhausting point where they're like, I need something different. And the diets continue to fail me. And although they may still think that's just their fault, they're ready to figure out what's truly going on. Your clients find it difficult. They find oh. the journey recovery. Yeah. Totally. I don't think it's really easy for anyone, but that doesn't mean it's not worth it. It is hard. Also because you're rejecting a lot of societal norms around you, especially if you reside in a bigger body, it's so much easier to choose recovery and give up dieting when you reside in a smaller body because you don't have to worry about people judging you for it or that limiting your access to certain things. But if you're in a bigger body, you do still deserve to recover. You absolutely can have an eating disorder in a bigger body. And it's also okay for you to end up in a bigger body. And that's, I think that just adds a lot more to the equation of someone choosing to recover um, and and being able to have the access to, to do so. And so it's definitely hard for, for everyone to recover. But the when you know why, you're doing recovery, it makes it easier because that's what you have your sights set on. You're not willing to give up anything for, you know, you're not willing to give up that why in recovery. Like my why was I wanted to be able to travel to Italy and eat gelato and not worry about how many steps I had in that day or not purge it later, not, you know, binge the whole vacation. I just wanted to be able to eat like the Italians, walk the Italian streets, eat gelato and just be happy. And every time I thought about going back on another diet through my recovery, 
or every time I wanted to purge or whatever, I would just think about that. I'm like, I'm not willing to risk not getting that. Like that is clear as day. I want that. And I'm going to do everything I can to get there. And I knew that further restriction or purging would not get me there. So that's, I think the most important thing for clients when they they're going through those hard times is to remember why they're doing it. Did you get to go to Italy? Yes, I did. I did actually, uh, shortly after my recovery in 2016, I went, but then I went a second time in 2019 after I wasn't vegan anymore and got to really experience it. And that was so freeing. I actually took a video of me in uh, Verona eating my gelato and like walking down. And I was like, this is what my, my dream was all about. And I finally got to experience that. And I want that for all of my clients as well. Yeah. I think I really agree with what you said about finding your why, like I think that is so pivotal because recovery is a roller coaster, right? Like it is up and down. And also we should say it can be really great. There's so many positives to it as well. Um, especially you know, long-term, it's going to be much easier for you to navigate your relationship with food and to live a life where you don't have to worry if the next binge is around the corner. It's all, it's amazing. Yeah. I always talk to my clients about healing, like the healing phase of recovery is being a little uncomfortable and you're doing things that you wouldn't normally think of as quote unquote healthy. It's the same as when you have a broken bone and you have to rest more. You might have to ice your leg more and that's not really comfortable. And you may have to wear different things if your clothes can't fit over a cast, right? Like there's modifications you have to be making in order to nurture your body back to a place of strength and to heal that broken bone. And I I see recovery similarly where it's like you're healing. It's going to be a little messy and uncomfortable and not what you want at times, right? You just want this thing to to work right. But you know that with time, it'll be stronger because you nurtured it and because you took that time to heal and be gentle. So to kind of see it in that same light of like, we're healing and that's, it's going to take time and it's going to be hard, but it's going to be worth it on the other side. I love that analogy. Haven't heard that before. So thank you. Yeah. (laughs) Was travel important to you as part of your recovery? Oh, yes. A thousand percent. Just the Italy trip or anything else? I think Italy was a big one for me because my my family is Italian. My mom's side of the family is Italian. And maybe, I mean, maybe my fear of carbs as diets fueled that where I thought about Italy and the carbs and pasta. But I just really fell in love with Italian culture Oh, just a long time ago in my recovery. So that was very important to me. But also when I had my eating disorder, I had never left the States. And so I always dreamed about traveling, but so much of my eating disorder kept me from doing fun things because I was so scared of not being on my diet, ruining my diet. I remember one time when I lived in LA, my friend Eric was like, oh, come up with my friends to San Francisco for the weekend And I tried to find all these excuses not to go. And then ultimately I went because I was like, what am I doing? Like nothing going on. You're young. Your friend wants to go up to San Francisco with you. You've never been go like what's stopping you. But I was like, oh, but I'm eating low carb. And like, what are we going to eat? I remember another trip. I went to Death Valley um, with my then boyfriend and we went out to eat at this Mexican restaurant. And I was so frustrated because I couldn't eat anything low carb. I think I ended up getting like piece of tilapia or something. And I was so frustrated. And it's like that ruined that whole moment for me. So once I finally realized I wanted to get my life back and stop this diet war, 
I I really thought about all those experiences I had missed out on because of my disordered behaviors. So that really became a a huge motivation for me where I was like, I want to be able to get these memories back in a way that's fully free that, you know, I, I really care about. Yeah. I think travels offer so much perspective, right? Like when you're in the darkest depths of your binge eating and the world feels like it's closing in, okay, I'm not saying that you need to go to Italy or you need to go to San Francisco, but even if you can go to a new part of your town that you've not seen before or be a tourist in your own city, whatever you can do, just something to remind you that you are not the only person in this world. I also think that learning about other cultures and seeing the way people in other cultures eat puts a lot of food stuff into perspective. You know, for example, I used to do the whole low carb craze when I was in my eating disorder. And the first time I stopped to question why carbs or like how carbs could be so unhealthy if Italians live so long was really where I was like, what, what is this rule? Right. Why do I believe that carbs are somehow so evil when there's a whole culture that thrives on carbs? And then, of course, I ended up going vegan and eating very high carb. And now I'm like, here on the flip side, people are saying eating high carb is the best thing you could do for yourself. So there's so much conflicting diet information out there. But if you actually take a moment to zoom out and see the world around you and how many cultures around you live long, healthful lives, if they're able to, eating tons of foods that you would see as off limits, you realize food and eating doesn't really have to be that complicated. Um, whenever I was in Italy in 2019, I lived with a, like an Italian girl, an Italian college student. Every single morning we had a pastry, every single morning. And then we went and stayed with her grandmother out in Tuscany and we had dessert every single night we were staying with her at like 11 p.m. at night. These are breaking all of the diet rules I once had. And I was like, and these people are healthy and happy and fine. So what what was I so worried about? But I was really worried about weight. But once weight gets off the equation and you realize that's not what life, health, and happiness is all about, you realize that, you know, eating also isn't that complicated. Um, so that's where I think travel can be really helpful is to see other cultures, open your perspectives to that, um, try different cultural foods and, you know, really get to, yeah, just feel like you're just not so alone. Yeah. How do you maintain your recovery? Have you ever had any relapses? I've been very lucky that I haven't had any relapses with like food stuff, but I won't lie and say that my body image stuff has been perfect. There's been, I have photos from college, which is when I was so-called recovered, uh, like body checking photos and, you know, in my camera roll just from back then, because I was still so concerned about my image. And there are still days today where I will feel down on my body image, but I think what always keeps me grounded in having a a healthy relationship with food is just that I know that this life is so worth it. And I think back to those dieting days or even even just mild restrictions with food. And I'm like, that's just like, I could die tomorrow. 
that sounds so morbid, but truly. And is that what I want my life to be all about? Do I really want to be so worried about like the one extra Oreo I had or, you know, the milkshake that I shared with my partner or whatever else it is. Um, I also think one thing that has helped me a lot with binging specifically is I stopped labeling any instance of overeating as a binge. For a while there at the beginning of my recovery, I would see any moment where I overate and I'd be like, oh, I binged again, right? Like, oh, I had one too many, not even just one too many cookies, but like many cookies. And like, oh, I, sh- I ate a bunch of cookies instead of dinner. And like, I just binge. And I started to just be like, you know, maybe I'm just human and I overeat sometimes. And I think really labeling some an instance with food as a binge would create this shame spiral to where I would then continue to binge versus me just saying like, oh, I overate, that's okay, and moving on. Um, obviously, there are very clear distinctions between overeating and a binge, but I think the moment I dropped that label from behaviors with food, I actually kind of stopped, obviously, in, in addition to many other changes in my behaviors and mindset, but it stopped the perpetuation of further binges if I did have a moment where I overate. So even today, you know, I'm human. There are moments where I overeat. There are moments where like, I just can't be bothered to make dinner. And I end up, you know, eating some random stuff from my pantry that in the past could have easily turned into a binge. But now I just see it as a moment where I needed food and I ate food and yeah, it was less than ideal. Yeah. I wasn't really listening to my body, but it happens and that's okay. So I think, I guess that's all to say a lot more empathy for myself keeps me in recovery because I realize I'm never going to be perfect. I'm not some imperfect intuitive eater where I always listen to my body. I eat when I'm hungry. I stop when I'm full and I only eat foods that make me feel good. Absolutely not. Sometimes it just kind of, you know, it, it ebbs and flows and that's okay. I think if we expect ourselves to be perfect, we will literally never be happy. And I don't think we'll ever really be recovered. Every client that I work with, I try to start by identifying like what is success? Because if success is only if we never overeat again, we never binge again, we never emotionally eat again, we're going to be a failure because we're human beings and we're not perfect and life happens. And so what if we make that idea of success rather than like never emotional eating, it's widening our toolbox of emotional coping strategies. What if instead of success only being if I never binge, it's about cultivating curiosity and empathy after a binge to meet our body's needs and prevent, you know, the hopefully prevent the need to binge again, right? But it's more about what we can do with the moments that are thrown at us rather than having to always be perfect. And I think perfectionism is big in in eating disorders. And so a lot of the work I do and have to continue to do even with my own mindset is allowing a lot more flexibility and a lot more space to be human. Easier said than done, right? So much easier said than done, yes. (laughs) Just to normalize where I was listening to this, Marissa saying like you struggle sometimes to put a meal together and you find yourself eating stuff from your pantry. Yeah. To normalize that. Especially if you're not neurotypical, like I have ADHD and sometimes my ADHD prevents me from being planned with my meals, from putting a perfect meal together. Sometimes my ADHD prevents me from listening to my hunger. I will skip meals still on accident. And then that causes me to have more of a ravenous hunger later. 
but I recognize that is just a part of me, not like something that like, oh, I need to fix this. Like it's just going to happen. And so how can I work with that rather than feel like I have to remove this part of myself, which is just part of my biology. Yeah. Working with it and not against it. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, I, so how I think about these baskets that I do now. So I, I'm cluttered with, as ADHDers tend to be sometimes. And an ADHD coach I had one time had this like really simple tip of like, instead of trying to not be cluttered, why don't we just make more of a, an organized clutter and put a basket in every room and drop your clutter into the basket or at the, you know, before you leave a room, take all the clutter off your desk and put it in the basket. You don't have to put it away, just put it in the basket. And then when you do your deep clean once a month or like when you, you know, feel like it because impulsively with ADHD, sometimes I'll be like, let me just organize this basket, you know, then you can put it away. I was like, oh, she's like, you don't have to try not to be clutter. Let's just, let's just try to make it work better with just how you are. So now I have these baskets literally in every single room. It's like an organized mess and that's okay. (laughs) I love that. I don't have ADHD, but I'm a messy person. I gotta say. Get baskets. It's (laughs) life-changing. My last question for you is more of a practical one. So I'm living in the States only for three years in total. I'm two years down. I'm here with my husband who's doing his PhD. And so in my last year, I have food FOMO. I need to make sure I eat all of the best American snacks. So do you have like a top or top three? Oh, that's a good question. Oh, such a good question. I don't know what you don't have, but definitely Cheeto puffs, Mm. the cheese puffs. Oh, those are like, if I'm on the beach or it it tends to be a beach snack for me. That's just when I can think about it, but that's really good. Um, What else? That tends to be my biggest go-to. Um... I mean, Chipotle, that's like my go-to. I love Chipotle. My go-to Chipotle, oh, I don't know if I have a go-to. I was going to say I have a go-to Chipotle order, but it changes. Say my my favorite go-to from Chipotle is a burrito, a chicken burrito with white rice, sour cream, lettuce, the pico de gallo, and brown, not brown, uh, what is black beans, (laughs) brown beans, black beans. Um, So, so good. Uh, Chipotle, I've been a fan of for so long. Um, and then, oh, I don't know if you have Wendy's, Wendy's French fries, Wendy's French fries and a chocolate frosty. That is my go-to. I love it. If I'm like, if I need a little comfort food or if I'm drunk, (laughs) (laughs) Wendy's French fries and a chocolate frosty are like together. It's my favorite. So interesting. Cause I've had something from Wendy's. It was some kind of sandwich or wrap or something. Did not think it was good, but I'll go back just for the French fries. I don't need anything so else from Wendy's. I don't know why. I just like am uninterested in it. But their French fries, I don't know what it is. They're my favorite. I did a poll on Instagram the other week asking like, what are the best fast food French fries in, in people's you know own opinions? And a lot of people voted McDonald's, but I'm a big Wendy's French fry, French fry fan. That's a tongue twister. <laughs> Thank you so much, Marissa, for this whole conversation. It's been so great get your insight and to meet somebody else, another dietitian who's doing the same work that I am smashing binge eating. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And there we go. What did you think of that conversation with Marissa? I really enjoyed interviewing Marissa because 
we are very similar in lots of ways. We both are dietitians. We both work with clients to help you smash binge eating. But we're also very different and our paths are very different. Marissa struggled with binge eating before she became a dietitian, whereas I struggled with binge eating afterwards. Marissa has no problem talking about her own experiences with binge eating online and I'm getting better at it, but I have to admit I still struggle sometimes to be so open. And although Marissa didn't have any professional support in recovering from binge eating, she found lots of useful resources online at the time. Even though I struggled at a pretty similar time to her, I remember turning to Google and not finding much at all. And that was a great driver for me to start the Binge Eating Dietitian podcast. I hope you found this episode insightful. Your next step is to go sign up for the free event this Thursday. Remember, October 13th, 8.30 p.m. UK time or 3.30 p.m. Eastern time. We're talking all things how to have chocolate in your fridge and not feel completely out of control about it. I will see you there. And if not, I'll see you in the next episode of the Binge Eating Dietitian podcast. Until then, please take care of yourself. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. It is not a substitute for individual medical or mental health advice and it does not constitute a provider-patient relationship.